Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It's great to be back on the air again with all of you, and I hope every one of you is doing well, no matter where you live in the world. But I'm glad to be back on the air to share with you all another episode to the War of 1812 in Wisconsin, the Battle for Prairie du Chien by Mary Elise Antoine. I must say, this has been a great uh, study. And if one were to ask me, of all the books that I have um, discussed with you all, my fellow 101 listeners, which, would, which one was probably the most challenging? Well, I would have to say that all of them have presented their share of challenges, but for all the right reasons. I would say that no matter what um, journey I've taken with podcasting, it's been the good, it's been nothing but good challenges, all for the right reasons. This isn't supposed to be a cakewalk. It requires uh, determination. It requires a lot of uh, self-focus and uh, discipline. It also requires um, studying ahead of time. In other words, looking through uh, the chapter as a large, looking through the chapters at large, and dissecting the information that is important to share. That is what is worth relevant to share, and yes, finding other information that can seem to be of relevant importance, but at the same time knowing that okay, I have 60 minutes, up to 60 minutes to uh, to discuss the podcast. How much time do I need in 60 minutes if I don't use the whole 60 minutes to make it happen? Not just so much to make it happen, but to make it worthwhile for you all, my fellow listeners. Well, the way I've got it programmed is this. Six pages really would be the maximum. That is six pages of notes per a chapter. But I usually try to keep it between four and a half and five pages. Anything over six would uh, be cutting it very, very close to the point where there's no guarantee that I would be able to do my entire podcast within a 60-minute span. So it's all about deciphering what's important and in terms of information to share and what to hold off on. Otherwise, if I'm not able to do any of that, then, I'm, then there's no way for me to be able to present a relevant podcast session to you all, my faithful listeners. So... That's how this all uh, comes into play, but as for um, which of the uh, series that I can say has been the most challenging, I would say it's this one that I'm doing right now, but I'm not going to complain about it because it is a story that has not been told for, um, that in my opinion hasn't really been told a great deal about until um, Mary Elise Antoine wrote this book. As I said to you all earlier, I didn't even know myself that that the War of 1812 had a uh, true um, impact on what we now know as present-day Wisconsin, but it did. And that's the story that needs to be shared, because we are learning for ourselves that what was going on at Prairie du Chien was vital, not only for just one part of the country, but for the United States as a whole. We have to keep in mind that war itself is not always confined to just one region of a country. This war in particular has been fought on various different fronts. Is it fair to say that the American Revolution was too? Absolutely. So, what are we going to be discussing in this uh, podcast um, episode? Well, we're going to be discussing about um, the next expedition to Prairie du Chien 
but we're going to find out that while American forces don't actually make it into Prairie du Chien, I'm going to tell you all of that now. What I am going to tell you is that is that the Americans are going to um, go about conducting a mission, or rather missions, that with the intent on wanting to get to Prairie du Chien, but it's going to be one that's going to involve lots of twists and turns. Twists and turns that start out perhaps working to our favor, but those twists and turns end up doing the opposite. I know I could be giving away a lot of information right now, but in order to understand where we're going, we've got to understand that there are twists and turns. Whether No matter how big or small they are, we've got to accept them and learn why these twists and turns took place so that if the mission itself failed, where do we go from here? Because after all, it is fair to say that the United States did emerge as the victor from the War of 1812, but it wasn't handed to them. So, our first leadoff question is going to be the following. Who was uh, John Campbell? I know that sounds like an odd leadoff question, but he is someone uh, worth mentioning. Well, let me ask you all this. Is John Campbell an officer? Yes. But here's the real answer we ought to look for. Is John Campbell an officer in the United States Army, or is he an officer with the British Army? The answer is choice A. He is an officer in the United States Army, whom served as a major. So, does Major John Campbell have a um, task before him? He does, but ironically, Major Campbell and his forces, let me ask you all this, were Major Campbell and his forces present at Prairie du Chien on July 20th, the day for which the formal surrender at Fort Shelby happened? How many of you all say yes? How many of you all might say no? Well, regardless of the answer you think, I'll go ahead and give you the real answer. The answer is choice B, no. Major John Campbell and his forces were not present at Prairie du Chien. So where were they? And wherever they were, is it important to know exactly where they were? Sure. They were facing an uphill battle, their own uphill battle, along an island known as Rock Island. Many of y'all, many of y'all heard of Rock Island. I know Rock Island is, um, there is a place called Rock Island, Illinois, which is not far from the Illinois-Iowa line. So it could exactly, we could be exactly referring to um, this Rock Island that is smack dab between Illinois and Iowa. So, Major Campbell and his forces are facing uphill battles along Rock Island where the Rock River leads into the Mississippi River. Well, isn't the term uphill battle vague? I mean, when I think of uphill battle, how about, you know, a battle where the where you're under um relentless attack from the enemy and there's no way of getting out of the um attack alive. That's one way of facing an uphill battle. Uh could Uphill battle also refer to uh, dealing with elements of nature that you as an army don't have control over? Absolutely. 
So if one were to ask me, what do you think of, Kirk, when you hear of uphill battle in this circumstance that's involving Major John Campbell and his forces? Based off of what I read from um, Mary Elise Antoine's book, this is one that is pertaining to um, elements of nature. We must keep in mind that while, yes, uh, there are parts to any river that are um, safe in terms of um, in terms of being along the water without having to um, encounter a um, an undertow or a current that could um, take you away uh, that, that could take you into a deep part of the river where you might not be able to stay afloat to where in some instances uh, you know one could drown if they were not um, an experienced swimmer or if they simply um, lost their footing and uh, were not able to reach um, back atop the surface. So we, you know, we should also keep in mind too that there are parts of a river or of any river that one would have to be certified to be on. In other words, when you deal with um, a river who's got rapids uh, on the level four, level five river, level five category, um, wouldn't it be fair to say that you would need to have certification? Otherwise, if you don't have certification, why should you be out in uh, rough waters that you don't have any experience in? So it's one of those uh, things that, um, you know, yes, we can assume that, oh, navigating a river's waters is peaceful, a piece of cake, but in reality, it's not. So for Major Campbell and his uh, crew, they are facing an uphill battle along the rock, along Rock Island where the Rock River leads into the Mississippi River. And the uphill battle pertains to 14 miles of rapids above Rock Island. Folks, 14 miles. That is a, that is a huge stretch of rapids. A huge stretch of rapids that will either make or break the well-being of a crew, no matter how big or small the crew is. I can tell you this much, there are well over 10 men along this mission. For all I know, there could be close to maybe 60 men at best. I know there's more than one um, gunboat, or barge rather, but to be encountering 14 miles of rapids, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of, uh, what do you call it, uncertainty. So, besides these rapids and unpredictable wind speed, think about this. The wind can change at any moment, folks. The, you know, the wind can be so rough that it could, um, you know, it could lead to a boat um, going in the wrong direction and hitting a rock from below to where some of your crew people could fall out of the boat or a boat could capsize. So we're, we're going into uncharted waters if you're on the American side here. And beso so besides dealing with the rapids and an unpredictable wind speed, Major Campbell and his crew, including reinforcements from two other barges, faced relentless attacks from Indian forces resulting in the deaths of two American soldiers to a barge running aground. When you hear of the phrase a barge or a ship running aground it usually means that the ship's um that the ship's bottom has flattened out as a result of 
hitting a rock. Or what I, what I think of when I think of a ship flattening out, I usually tend to think of like Great Lake ships who have uh, hit shoals. Uh, shoals are the hidden rocks. Uh, not just so much hidden rocks, but say going into shallower water where you think where a commander of a ship thinks that he's got his ship uh, positioned right to where um, they won't uh, encounter anything hidden um, below them. And it turns out that they they run a run aground by means of shoal, meaning a shallow rock that basically um, flattens out the 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 boat's bottom and um, pretty much um, what do you call it? Destroys the boat to the point where the boat itself is no longer salvageable. So yeah, see, so it's bad enough that this barge runs aground, hitting a rock below, but only to have the bottom of this uh, barge flattening out. So things are not looking very good for um, Major John Campbell, especially knowing that he's got Indians who are attacking from all different angles and two uh, soldiers of his have now have died as a result of the Indian attack. Well, despite all the military successes that the British had at Prairie du Chien, including outskirts, that is, including the uh, outskirts of uh, Prairie du Chien, because remember, not all hostilities are confined to just one place, especially with the War of 1812, and most notably uh, within, um, within uh, the heart of Prairie du Chien, as well as the outside, but despite all the military successes that the British forces have had recently, did Lieutenant Colonel William McKay know that the Americans would attempt another stand? In other words, did Lieutenant Colonel William McKay know that the Americans would be willing to take another uh, attempt, another go at trying to get this um, this sacred place? Yes. He knew that another American attempt would come later in 1814, being around the fall. But if not in the fall of 1814, most notably come spring 1815. So basically for Lieutenant Colonel William McKay, he knows that it's just a matter of time before the Americans are going to make another attempt. So McKay and his forces have 65 American prisoners at Prairie du Chien. These 65 prisoners, folks, um, came about as the result of the uh, surrender at Fort Shelby from uh, July 14th of 1820. You know, it's one thing to have prisoners, but at the same time, what are you going to do with those prisoners? You can't keep them there forever. You know, you run the risk of some of the prisoners dying. And, and when I think of prisoners dying... They could be dying from diseases, or they could die as a means of uh, inhumane treatment. But then again, many prisoners in the American Revolutionary War, of course, when I think of prisoners in wartime in the early years of America's history, I think of the American Revolution and just how inhumane, with regards to the inhumane treatment that the uh, prisoners aboard these um, ships in um, New York what we now know as New York City, um, they were placed into uh, ships. They were uh, British ships, but they were placed down below to where they never really saw 
broad daylight unless they were brought up from above and asked to uh, bury their own dead. Basically, those prisoners were given two choices. You either, um, if you take up arms with the British, you will be forgiven for your sins. But if you choose not to, then you will stay below and remain a prisoner until the day you die. So historians know that the uh, greatest number of casualties from the American Revolution itself were those who were aboard the prisoner ships. They know probably about roughly ten to 12,000 men died aboard prison ships. That's a far, you know, it, that was tragic onto itself, but of course there's a huge difference between um, the British having 65 American prisoners at um, at uh, Prairie du Chien versus um, the number of men who uh, died aboard the prison ships during the American Revolution between those numbers of 10 and 12,000. However, for uh, Lieutenant um, Colonel William McKay, he does have a lot to uh, worry about. Do any of you all know, by any chance, what William McKay feared more than anything else? Not just the fact that he's got the prisoners, but what did he fear could happen? He feared, that his biggest fear was if the U.S. military attempted to retake the fort, a.k.a. Fort Shelby, so if the Americans retake the, try to retake Fort Shelby and they fire upon Fort Shelby, is it fair to say that William McKay could instruct uh, men below him, including Indians, to hold the prisoners hostage until their own demands were met? Absolutely. Could the Indians decide that they would want to go about executing our, the prisoners? Sure as a means of encroaching upon their, their ancestral lands. So, Lieutenant Colonel William McKay decides to do something different. As a matter of fact, I actually have to applaud him for this decision. It's a humane decision. It's an ethical one. He sends Lieutenant Joseph Perkins and the rest of Perkins's men to St. Louis, where they were escorted by British military officials whom served under William McKay. So, July 28, 1814, um, is when Lieutenant Joseph Perkins and the rest of the crew, all 65 of those men, folks, were escorted by British mil military officials whom were serving under Lieutenant Colonel William McKay, and Perkins and his men arrived into St. Louis on August the 6th. So that's nine days, folks, from the time they left Prairie du Chien where they arrived, all arrived safely into St. Louis. A peaceful exchange, folks. It resulted in no violence, no loss of life. Yes, the British still have Prairie du Chien, but they were able to make a successful peace transfer of prisoners without having to go to war over the prisoners themselves. Of course, there is still a war going on, but more often than not, history has shown that when you are dealing with prisoners of war or hostages, that more often than not, violence erupts as a result of trying to get hostages released. And sometimes the end result has not always um, produced what one side um, would so desperately want. And not to get off track, but when I think of uh, failed um, 
mission attempts at, at um, getting hostages freed from um, from uh, captivity. I think of what happened back in um, 1980 at the height of the Iran uh, hostage crisis where uh, 52 Americans had been um, taken hostage from the uh, Iranian embassy in Tehran, Iran, um, from November 4th of 1979. I was only six months old when it happened, but the bottom line is is that uh, the United States tried um, an attempt to uh, rescue the hostages, and sadly, it was it ended in um, in terrible disaster. Um, two helicopters collided. Um, as a matter of fact, there was a documentary on it not long ago. But if you ever um, want to learn more about that failed um, mission. I would definitely recommend looking it up online. Uh, but anyways, back to what we're discussing. Nonetheless, um, I, I feel relieved knowing that Lieutenant Colonel William McKay did the right thing by sending these prisoners to St. Louis, where they they were all humanely treated, even along the way um, to St. Louis, and that there was no uh, loss of life. No one endured any form of un unnecessary oppression. Did um, Lieutenant Colonel William McKay have any difficulties with controlling Indian allies? Okay, it was bad enough that he was faced with a, a, a big dilemma over what would happen if the U.S. military attempted to retake the fort, being Fort Shelby. But, you know, I would like to think that Lieutenant Colonel William McKay has nothing but wonderful relations with the Indians, considering that the British and the Indians have been doing... Um, business via treaties for about 50-some years along this prairie in the aftermath of the French and Indian War, but it's fair to say that with all peaceful relations, there's always one or two people, or let alone a tribe or two, in this case dealing with Indian nations, there's always someone whom, for one, cannot be pleased, and two, will stand out as the black sheep. In other words, the either the odd family member out or just the oddball of the larger group who um, who seems to um, not be satisfied with anything that is either done for them or what the group does as a greater whole. So yes, Lieutenant Colonel William McKay did have difficulties in controlling the Indian allies under his um, belt especially amongst the Sioux and the Winnebago, whom were constantly causing um, turmoil. How so? Well, prior to the attack on Fort Shelby, both tribes shot livestock, which had belonged to residents within the main village and after hostilities ended. For no apparent reason. They just decided to shoot um, livestock that didn't belong to them. And some Indian members from both of these nations went about ravaging settlers' fields, resulting in crop destruction. You know, this is not a, a good way to be um, engaging in civility. Well, what do I mean by civility here? Okay, well, you know, even in a time of uh, crisis like warfare, there needs to be some form of civility displayed, because you never know what actions you commit today will not just so much backfire on you, but how the actions you commit today will impact your relations with an ally above or below you who would like to still remain on your side, 
but knowing that the actions you've committed will make them rethink where things stand, not only in the present day, but where things could stand long term down the road. So, if this is awkward enough, Lieutenant McKay is going to have to be, um, he's going to have to do something else because he can't have all this drama going on with the Indians, most notably the Winnebago and the Sioux. And of course, you know, as one would say, I'm not worried about these other people. It's just these one or two tribes that are, you know, causing the problems, which is what Lieutenant Colonel McKay is faced with. But it's not just so much the, these two tribes. It's now that he's got to bring all the other tribes together whom are not only playing by the rules, but he's got to bring them together to say, hey, look, if you all don't come together with me and getting these other two tribes under control, then down the road we're going to have even more problems. So McKay forces, he goes about overseeing that all tribes come together in the midst of bad tensions by distributing presents. And I'm not talking Christmas or birthday presents, folks, wrapped in fancy ribbon. Um, or, I'm not talking about those kinds of gifts. When I think of presents in this situation, how about presents that will benefit um, the Indian tribes whom have um, whom have uh, maintained um, a firm have maintained firm allegiances to the uh, crown, aka aka England. These presents are meant to um, they're really meant to um, to say, hey, look, you know, we're keeping watch over you people. We've we've been uh, bending backwards for you all. Yes, you all have done your part, but here in the midst of a crisis. You need to cut this stuff out. You need to stop all this um, this um, odd slash inappropriate behavior by, you know, shooting other people's livestock. For one, the livestock doesn't belong to you, but destroying crops that, um, think about that other families need at come harvest time to get them through uh, the winter. You know, this isn't the way uh, to conduct yourself. So these presents are meant to serve as a continuation of allegiance to England. Some would think, well, isn't McKay appeasing some of these people? Sure, but his, but he's really on borrowed time right here. Even he himself doesn't know what's going to happen, but he's got to come up with strategies to, um, to get the Indians back in line because the longer it takes to get them back in line, the, the greater the likelihood that uh, one or two allegiances will crumble to the point where um, other allegiances amongst uh, other Indian tribes will also have the potential to crumble. So these are trying times along the prairie for the British, but it's also one that is uh, full of fragility, or should I say short for fragile, because nothing is secure. It may look secure to us, but tension and conflict is inevitable. And when you're fighting a global war like this one along the American frontier, you better expect the unexpected. You better bring your A game. And for the British, they know that they've got to walk away with, walk away with their heads hanging high because they are the ones controlling the show here along the frontier. I mean, the Indians are too, but the British are the ones uh, wreaking havoc on American forces. So in early August of 1814... This would become a period of time where um, 
many residents of Prairie du Chien were yearning for a return to normalcy. Well, when I think of normalcy, they, uh, they want this conflict over. The longer the conflict lasts, the harder it becomes to really um, know what peace itself was like prior to war breaking out. Because for many of these people, even before war came about, they were at peace. They were at peace with each other. The longer this conflict goes on, who's to say that the peace itself will ever return back to what it was prior to hostilities beginning? So yes, for many of these people, they are yearning for a return to normalcy by resuming practices like crop harvesting to men like Joseph Rollette, whom needed to prepare his store for the upcoming winter season per trade goods already received. August 10, 1814, Lieutenant Colonel McKay leaves Prairie du Chien for Michilimackinac. He selects Thomas Anderson as the new commander of Fort McKay. Fort McKay becomes the British fortification at Prairie du Chien. How fitting that the fort was named after Lieutenant Colonel uh, William McKay. What, what changes by mid-August? In other words, what takes place come mid-August 1814? Multiple dele delegations of Fox tribe peoples make their way to Prairie du Chien where they go about advising British officials of an evolving American presence via barges along the Mississippi River. So, you know, it's easy to get this assumption that all the Indian tribes are just in one little place along the upper Mississippi, meaning that they're not far from Prairie du Chien, but we must keep in mind that the Mississippi River is a large, large body of water, and that there are many tributaries, that is, body, bodies of water that uh, flow into the Mississippi River. So, the more tributaries there are, the greater the likelihood that there are Indian uh, bases along these tributaries that can uh, go about garnering intelligence and go um, in the necessary direction where British presence is at a stronghold and say to those officers, hey, look, this is where American movement is currently at. So maybe you need to start bringing some of your men down southward to try to halt a potential advance northward into Prairie du Chien. British Lieutenant uh, Duncan Graham, he, he was placed in charge of 30 men from Fort, M Fort McKay, including 111 Indians from the Sioux, Fox, and Winnebago tribes whom would travel along the Mississippi in search of, of an American resurgence. Well, that's a lot of um, Indians right there, folks. But, but the more Indians that are brought along this uh, mission, the greater the likelihood that the Indians can be used for surprise raid attacks. Think about it. Their war cries can scare away an enemy very easily. So, yes, the more Indians you bring along, the greater their um, presence will be known in terms of uh, intelligence gathering and also for uh, launching surprise raid attacks on the Americans. So, 
this expedition began on August the 27th of 1814 and come August 29th, uh, Lieutenant Graham's forces arrive into the uh, Rock Island Rapids. He would turn to the Indians for establishing consistent lookouts as well as, as, well as maintaining a defense line around Rock Island. Well, as I mentioned just a moment ago about the, um, the need to have Indians in going about establishing um, intelligence gathering um, missions, well, he, Lieutenant Graham is on the right page. He's going to turn to the Indians for establishing consistent lookouts as well as, uh, defense, as, well as um, establishing a defense line around Rock Island. Now, who on the American side would lead the expedition up the Mississippi? Was it William Clark? Was it um, George Krogan? Or was it General Benjamin Howard? General Benjamin Howard. Uh, we mentioned about him earlier in that uh, he had been um, the one-time Missouri territorial governor before William Clark assumed that position. So, for General Howard... Is General Howard going to go for Prairie du Chien, or is he going to, um, or is he going to do something else first before going to Prairie du Chien? The answer is choice B. He's going to do something else first before going to Prairie du Chien. Could it be that what he wants to do first is some is a measure that, in his eyes, will um, will catch the uh, British and the Indians off guard? Yes. But does it automatically guarantee that he's going to have success? No. But let's find out those reasons. Instead of going for Prairie du Chien, General Howard chose to attack the Sac Nation along the Missouri and Mississippi rivers. Those two rivers do meet, folks. The military launch focused upon the Sac Indians the military launch itself, rather, I should say, focused upon the Sac Indians whom lived along the Missouri River at the entrance of the Grand River, including the villages along the lower confines of the Rock River. So that, that's a lot of terrain right there, folks. But for General Howard, this is what has to be done because he can't place all of his boats in one spot. The boats have to be going in different uh, directions, but they all have to meet within a certain uh, radius of one another to where they can cut off um, reinforcements from the uh, opposition. So the frontier area endured constant harassment from Indians. So in other words, this the reason why they're going into um, the Missouri and Mississippi River regions, not just so much the Mississippi River, but along um, where the Sac Indians lie, it's because the Sac Indians have have been responsible for creating lots of harassment amongst um, the Americans in that area to the point where those uh, lines have to be cut off in order to ensure that the Americans will be able to achieve their objectives uh, short and long term. General Howard instructed a fellow major who would go on to one day become uh, president of the United States by the name of Zachary Taylor. He instructed Major Zachary Taylor to lead a group of rangers and militia upstream towards the entryway of the Rock River, where the Sac villages stood along 
with sending General Henry Dodge of, of the Missouri militia up the Missouri River. This is a lot of coordination here, folks, but remember, we have to keep in mind that, um, that when these kinds of missions are taking place, it's best to split up your um, regiments because if you take all the regiments in one direction and you get fired upon, the chances of many people surviving might not be slim. Well, it might not be high, rather. So if, by splitting up your uh, regiments, if one regiment comes under attack, another regiment could um, come to your rescue or, or, or go in a different position and launch their attack to the point where... Um, where the enemy can be taken by surprise and, and the, with the intention of reducing the overall number of losses. So we just have to keep in mind, folks, that, that this uh, conflict is not always, has not always been revolved around land. We are real, learning here that a lot of this um, navigation from point A to point B is by waterway. So, uh, come August 28th, Major Taylor's forces of 334 men ventured upward along the Mississippi in eight gunboats. 334 men, eight gunboats. So, the way I figured it is this, is that um, that's roughly about um, just over 40 men per each gunboat at best. Maybe 40, 42 men per gunboat, but... Let's just keep in mind these gunboats aren't dinky-sized boats. We're not talking like canoes. They are—they're um, big. But going along the rivers itself for these gunboats have proven to be challenging so far, based off of what happened with uh, Major um, John Campbell's um, expedition. Did Major Zachary Taylor face challenges of his own? Yes, he did. Because he came to the realization that the gunboats were too large for changing uh, course, that is, direction along the Rock River. So what course did he pursue? For starters, the gunboats would go about passing the closest sack village as a means in identifying the best landing spot. So in other words, by coming closer into the, water, in, into the uh, shoreline, he would... Um, land, but not just land, but by landing, he would find a way to lure the Indian peoples, most notably the Sac tribes, by coming on land, but Major Taylor would have a white flag. This white flag would result in the council negotiations. The white flag is a truth, a sign of truce. It doesn't mean that all fighting stops completely, but it just means that in this case we're not ready to fight today, but we would like to uh, try to work out some kind of uh, compromise negotiation. But this would not be one of those uh, compromises where everybody lives happily ever after. For Major Taylor, his objective is w was going to be to obtain intelligence. In other words, he was going to hope that the Indians would spill the beans and say, hey, this is what um, other tribes are doing along the upper Mississippi near Prairie du Chen. That's what Taylor was hoping. He was hoping to find that maybe a couple of the Indian tribes would rat out everyone else, including prominent British leaders like Lieutenant Colonel William McKay, 
even um, Robert Dixon, of all people. That didn't happen. The British forces under Lieutenant Graham were too smart for this. They were too smart for it in large part because a handful of Sac Indians had already obtained intelligence, in, or what I call, they had went about obtaining intelligence information confirming what exactly the American mission's intent was all about. And what was the, the American uh, mission intent focused upon? None other than seizing Prairie du Chien. So in other words, the Indians knew, most notably of the Sac Nation, they knew that the Americans were taking the long way around. And by taking the long way around, they would have more time on their side to where the Americans were convinced that, okay, the longer this mission takes, the greater the likelihood that maybe a couple of Indian tribes will, will provide us with the intelligence, being the smoking gun, but no. The Indians were too smart for this. They knew all along that the American missions, that the American mission intent was to seize Prairie du Chien. Sometime uh, in the evening between uh, September 3rd and September 4th, the U.S. forces came under attack led by Lieutenant Graham's men, including Sac Indians, resulting in major damage to a majority of the American gunboats. And the U.S. forces folks were outnumbered three to one. So for every one soldier that was available, being 334 men comprised of uh, eight gunboats, you had three, you had nearly three British soldiers along with, say, three Indians. You know, there were three, well, let me put it this way, maybe three members of the opposition for one American, um, American uh, person fighting. So if you know you're outnumbered three to one, Good luck trying to um, good luck trying to keep fighting because uh, the longer you fight, knowing you're outnumbered three to one, the greater the likelihood you're going to have more casualties. What was still needed, you know, the British have uh, really been striking it hard to us. So if they've been striking it so hard to us, why do they still need to be concerned about? about other imminent uh, threats. They need to be concerned about other imminent threats because they don't know what could be coming at them, but British leaders know that their relations with the Indians along the prairie simply cannot be taken for granted. They know that that 50 years of uh, friendship is... is um, how do I say it? 50 years of friendship has been... Tremendous for them, but they know that that all it could take is one disastrous battle in terms of defeat to where that relationship amongst the um, multitude of Indian nations could um, could disband and forever to where alliances would no longer be able to be uh, rekindled. So for every British victory, there is the British at the same time have to reassess what's in front of them so that they can um, keep this um, flame alive going forward for future um, battles, not only amongst um, the Americans, but how they will go about securing the frontier. So what was still needed in order to maintain a strong presence, along with preserving Indian allies in the Northwest Territory for the British? 
What are the British, along with the Indians, dependent upon? I think they're dependent upon a lot of things, folks, but one thing comes to my mind, and it was mentioned in this book. It begins with the letter T, folks. It's a five-letter word. Trade. That is the most essential element in order to go about maintaining a strong presence, that is for the British, not only along the Northwest Territory, but for preserving Indian alliances. Trade, not just trade, but having um, trade routes, or a trade route where goods will come from point A to point B, where both parties will significantly, will significantly benefit for all the right reasons. Well, the British had uh, learned some uh, lessons from the year before in September 1813, the defeat most notably from the Battle of Putten Bay, a.k.a. Lake Erie in Ohio. This defeat led to the diminishing um, of Britain's uh, supply line from Montreal to Michilimackinac. The Lake Erie naval defeat led British leadership to rethink their, their strategies. So how did they go about rethinking their strategies? They went about building a new waterway from York, Ontario, and at this time York is the interim uh, capital of Upper Canada, to uh, a place in Ontario called uh, Nottawasaga Bay. And if any of you all are wondering where Nottawasaga Bay is in Ontario, that's in southern Ontario, not far from, um, not too, it, it's, it's in southern Ontario, uh, I'll tell you that, including a naval base in Georgian Bay, Ontario, where Mackinac Island could be better protected from outside invasions. For those of you who don't know where Georgian Bay is in Ontario, it's um, located on um, the Canadian side of Lake Huron. So Georgian Bay is, it's not far, it's, it's attached to Lake Huron on the Canadian side, but it's its own uh, separate um, separate waterway. But if any of you all were wondering where exactly it was in relation to the Great Lakes, it's on the Canadian side uh, bordering Lake Huron. Would a naval battle ensue around the upper Great Lakes, a.k.a. or what we now know is around Mackinac Island, would there be a naval battle that would ensue? Yes, come the start of August 1814. So it is fair to say, folks, that the British were smart enough to come up with a new waterway route that will uh, help um, enhance the flow of goods coming from uh, one direction to the other, but it will also benefit not only just the British but the Indians. Without trade, how can their alliances be um, intact? And not just their alliances, but how can uh, British uh, domain, or what's left of their domain in the Northwest Territory, still remain intact? So you've got to have something to sell if you want to have an alliance, not only um, for the short term, but for the long term. So let's learn about this uh, battle in August of 1814, uh, rather naval battle, around the Upper Great Lakes. Whom is uh, whom whom leads the way in terms of um, high level commander 
on the American side. Was it John Paul Jones or Arthur Sinclair? The answer is choice B, Arthur Sinclair. And for those of you, um, just to let you know, there was a John Paul Jones. He was the founder of the American Navy, but he has already passed away. As a matter of fact, he passed away probably a good 20 years before the War of 1812 broke out. But if you have anybody to thank for being the uh, modern-day founder of the United States Navy, think of John Paul Jones. But um, in this case, it is Na U.S. Navy Captain R Arthur Sinclair, whom has been instructed to take control of the Upper Lakes by retaking Mackinac, along with eliminating... Britain's naval presence. He has a force of 750 men from three army regiments, including 250 Ohio militia. He has multiple artillerymen. And joining him is a lieutenant colonel by the name of George Krogan, who has a supply of, or has a unit of soldiers, or I should say reinforcements. George Krogan is interesting, folks, because it turns out that his uncle is William Clark. There is a place in New York State, in Lewis County, um, which is not far from the Thousand Islands where my wife and I vacationed last summer in 2020. It's Lewis County, and uh, Lewis County is named after um, the Lewis family. Um, I know that the uh, father was uh, Francis Lewis, who was a signer of the Declaration of Independence, but it was named after one of his sons. And uh, as a matter of fact, there's a village in Lewis County called Krogan, New York, named after this man, uh, George Krogan. Matter of fact, um, there's another village in uh, Lewis County that's uh, well known. It's known as uh, Lowville. Spelled L-O-W-V-I-L-L-E, but it's pronounced Lowville. It's uh, what's called in the uh, Tug Hill country, not far from uh, Oswego, or right on uh, Lake Ontario. So, you know, you would think, okay, you know, the United States has just over a thousand men. You would think that this could be a slam-dunk victory for them, considering that the British forces under Lieutenant Colonel Robert McDowell have a much smaller unit size. How did this fight, or let alone battle, over whom controlled Mackinac Island end? Well, American Lieutenant Colonel George Krogan went about landing a force with extra regulars to attack the British Stone Tower, or what's called a bastion. He had a good plan set into play, however... He, his men were caught off guard by Indians who launched surprise raid attacks from different positions, or rather I should say different angles. They weren't all confined to one in one area of the um, Stone Tower or Bastion, but they came from all corners, surprising Lieutenant Colonel Krogan's men to the point where many of them were shot, many of them fled in terror, and those who survived were forced to fall back into retreat status. So this really was a debacle for us. Was it intended to have been a debacle? No. The problem was that we pretty much we pretty much sent a large group of men out into uh, wil out into wilderness, folks. I mean, 
you know, even forts are in wilderness-like areas. The problem was that we did not have a plan to fall back onto where, okay, by taking too many men into the fort, we didn't have enough men who were going to probably come out alive to where the next group could come in and provide cover and be able to reduce the, um, the severity of what already had happened. So, Mackinac Island, folks, has now fallen back into British hands. It was in American hands for, for a while, but now it's back into British hands. And all this took place in one day's time. The victories at Prairie du Chen, at Rock Island, to the defense of Michilimackinac. What do all of those um, achievements for the British have in common, or rather I should say, are the equivalent of? British dominance. No matter what the obstacles have been, folks, the British have seemed to pull off, they seem to know how to find a way to pull a victory off, even when they are outnumbered. But then again, whom have the British been able to turn to for helping them out? The Indians. The Indians are the ones that are really what I call the special team ops in this situation. They might as well be like the equivalent of the Green Berets or a Navy SEAL team. They know how to strike. They know how to strike when, when the enemy themselves don't even know what's coming at them. Is it fair to say that, these, that the Indians along the frontier around, who were either around the upper Mississippi, around Prairie du Chen, do they know all about guerrilla warfare? They sure do. They're no strangers to it. Well, we've uh, covered a lot of ground um, in this uh, segment, and when I'm back on the air again next, we are going to discuss what's called tensions at Fort McKay. You know, okay, we've got British dominance. Should the Indians be, be happy that they and the British are still on top of this um, conflict? Yes. But at the same time, we can't rest our laurels and assume that, okay, even after this victory at Michilimackinac, knowing that Mackinac Island has fallen back into British hands, we can't assume that everybody's going to uh, live happily ever after on the victor's side. So when I think of now tensions at Fort McKay, that can mean tensions amongst the British and the Indians once again. What, what we think of as small conflicts have the potential to become large-scale conflicts to where it will either make or break the relations that have been um, that have been how do I call it, that have been solidified for so long to the point where the relations one day will crumble and they may not be able to uh, come back to where they were prior to um, the inevitable. You know. To really understand a conflict like this, it involves uh, a lot of uh, research. Remember, these conflicts just don't happen overnight. But through time and um, studying, I've been able, I feel as though I've been able to provide you all, my listeners, with a good story. And that's what I will continue to do for as long as I podcast, to provide you all with a relevant story, with a story that... Um, that has true meaning, a story that um, makes you all better appreciate the history that took place at the time that it, that it happened. 
Well, uh, that's all for this uh, podcast episode. I look forward to being back on the air again soon with all of you. Thank you again for listening. You all are great. Take care for now and uh, continue to uh, stay safe. Later.